welcome back. I hope everyone is doing well. Um, if you're here for the first time, thank you for stopping by to listen. And so today we're going to talk about head and nest bomb. And uh, this case happened in, let me think here. Um, I'm not exactly sure when this case actually went into the public eye, but um, we'll get into more details about this. But it was in 1987 when Lisa Steinberg was murdered, and we're going to talk about her parents. I'm going to put that in quotation marks because there are some details regarding that. Um, but my personal thought on this, what was going on at the time. So I was actually, by the time it was televised, um, in the beginnings of my own domestic violence relationship that I had talked about earlier in my first podcast and didn't even know yet that I was in a domestic a situation where I was being abused. But there was a lot of comments in various ways about who was responsible. And um, we'll talk about that a little bit more, too, as we get into this podcast. But I can remember two things going through my head as I watched this on TV. And the first was that I couldn't believe a mother would do what Hedda did, which we'll talk about, of course. And also just seeing her on TV and knowing the age that she was and thinking, my God, she looks so old, but there's a reason for all of that. And so we're going to talk about, um, Hedda Nussbaum and how she fits into this case and what she had done with her life and a couple other details. And we're also going to talk about, um, Joel Steinberg, who was the other parent involved. So let's just get started. Hedda, she was born uh, August 8th, 1942. She's an American woman who was um, a parent for a six-year-old girl named Lisa who died of physical abuse in 1987. The death of the girl, Lisa Steinberg, sparked a controversial trial and media frenzy. The legal case was one of the first to be televised gavel to gavel. Excuse me. Supporters characterized Nesbaum as a victim of horrific domestic abuse at the hands of her live-in partner, Joel Steinberg. And and critics suggest that she was a consensual part in a sadomasochistic relationship and an an unprosecuted co-conspirator in the young girl's death. Now, I'm going to let you decide on that. Since then... I'll tell you at the end what my more recent thoughts are. So, before meeting Joel Steinberg in 1975, Hedda Nussbaum had been an editor and an author of children's books at Random House Publishers, and before that at Appleton Century Croft. Steinberg, Joel Steinberg, was a defense attorney who sometimes handled adoption cases. Beginning in 1976, Nussbaum and Steinberg lived together in a brownstone apartment in New York City's Greenwich Village. 
1977 book, Plants Do Amazing Things, was dedicated in part to, quote, Joel, my everyday inspiration. Due to Nesbaum's occasionally obvious bruises and other injuries, friends and, friends and colleagues suspected that Nesbaum was the victim of domestic violence. Later's neighbor, oh, brother, neighbors later stated to police that they believed that Nesbaum and Steinberg were active participants in a some kind of a sexual sadomasochistic game. Uh, friends occasionally offered to help Nesbaum, but she declined their offers of intervention or aid and refused to implicate Steinberg. Um, now, this part I find really interesting because she was showing obvious signs of, um, you know, abuse. And I'm thinking that people kind of came to the conclusion that she was in this sadomasochistic lifestyle um, because she refused to get help but you have to remember now we know more and people who are in a situation where they're being abused a lot of times will refuse help and refuse to press charges against their abusers so I think that's actually what was going on at the time when um, people were having these other kinds of thoughts about hers they just didn't recognize what was happening and so they rationalized in their mind that she was into some kind of um, sadism and masochism. Anyway, after she had had extended absences from work, Random House put Nesbaum on consulting editor status in 1982. In 1981, after dubious legal circumstances, Nesbaum and Steinberg took custody of an infant girl that they named Lisa. The little girl's birth mother had paid Steinberg a $500 legal fee to place the child with a Roman Catholic family. Both Nesbaum and Steinberg were Jewish. So something right there is a sign that wasn't exactly what it was supposed to be. Under similar circumstances, Nesbaum and Steinberg later took in a toddler that they named Mitchell, a little boy, and the couple ne never legally adopted either child. Hmm, there we go. So, in her 2005 book, Surviving Intimate Terrorism, Nesbaum argued that her denial of the danger she and her children lived in was typical of some chronically maltreated persons, i.e. battered person syndrome. Nesbaum claimed that she fled from the home six times only to later return. That is also typical. She had, like, all the classic signs of a battered person, but... You know, nobody really recognized it at the time that this all happened. Nesbaum mentions the medical theory that trauma, especially prolonged trauma, can elicit the body's production of opioids that produce mental and physical numbness. She also suggests that her numbness further reduced her ability to think and act clearly akin to Stockholm Syndrome, a mental state where the victims identify with their abusers. And I totally agree with this. And if you start listening to people who have survived you hear it referred to as trauma bonding that's what they're calling it nowadays trauma bonding it's it it seems illogical to the person who's on the outside looking in but it really does happen you become bonded to the person who's abusing you so according to initial police reports on november 1st 1987 around 7 p.m 
Steinberg rendered Lisa unconscious with a severe blow to the head. Nesbaum remained alone with the dying child for roughly 10 hours, failing to notify police or medical personnel. Steinberg departed and returned several times and was sometimes freebasing crack cocaine. According to initial police reports, Nesbaum didn't notify authorities because she believed that Steinberg had supernatural healing powers. Okay. At roughly 6 a.m. the next morning, Lisa stopped breathing, and shortly thereafter, Steinberg dialed 911 at Nesbaum's urging. After Lisa's death, Mitchell, the little boy, was discovered in squalid condition. The child's birth mother, Nicole Smeagol, had waived her parental rights. However, since there was not a legal adoption, Smeagol was ultimately granted custody of her son, so he escaped he escaped whatever was going on in that house. When authorities learned of Lisa's death, they initially charged both Nesbaum and Steinberg with complicity. In the course of the investigation, however, charters were later dropped against Nesbaum, which well, I'll tell you at the end. She agreed to testify against Steinberg, and medical examination revealed that Nesbaum was anemic, malnourished, and suffered from broken bones and chronic infections. With these findings, authorities determined that Nesbaum was physically incapable of seriously wounding Lisa. Nesbaum's courtroom testimony against Steinberg earned substantial media attention, due in part to her face showing obvious evidence of physical trauma. There were also indications, as Nesbaum testified in court, that Lisa had been sexually abused by people outside of her immediate family. During the trial, medical experts testified while Lisa's injuries were severe, she would have most certainly survived if she had gotten prompt medical treatment. Steinberg was convicted on charges of first-degree manslaughter. After serving 16 years in the Southport Correctional Facility, where he was held in protective custody, of course, Steinberg was released on parole in 2004 and got a job in construction. So obviously he's not allowed to be a lawyer anymore, which is probably a really good thing. Um, so... I don't know. You know, he, he refuses to talk about this, too. There's some other places where I had looked him up, and I don't want to give him too much in this, um, in this podcast, but, you know, he seems like he's pretty non-remorseful. I'll just put it that way. So, going back to Hedda. In the years following Lisa's death, Nussbaum worked to rebuild her life and had numerous reconstructive plastic surgeries. She also co-facilitated a support group for battered women about eight years, for about eight years, and she later worked as a paralegal for an organization that assisted battered women. In 1995, Nussbaum began giving lectures about abuse at colleges and shelters. However, when Steinberg was released from prison, she receded from the public attention until the publication of a book a year and a half later. Uh, and I, I believe that really what, what she's done is during this time when Steinberg was in prison, she did everything that she could to assist with battered women, but felt that she had to go to, into hiding because she didn't want Steinberg to find her. That's what, what my thought is on that. Um, so this... This case polarized feminist scholars and activists. Some saw Nesbaum as the archetype victim of domestic violence, whose actions were controlled and restricted not only by her abusive partner, but by culture at large that denies the seriousness of abuse in the home. 
other leading fe feminists, notably Susan Brown Miller, suggested that while Nestbaum suffered violence from her partner, she should have also shared culpability for Lisa's death. So, my feelings about Head and Nestbaum and situations in general where it, where there's a battered wife and a battered child, which I, I think that's actually a very common thing that it's not just the wife, but a lot of times there's also children, or a child or children, um, who are also targeted when there's an abusive person in a household. And, and I just said wife, but I, I'm going to correct that right now to partner because we know that females can also be abusive and can abuse men, that, that it's more commonly documented that women are more likely to be abused, but women can be abusive. And there's a phenomenon when we start talking about abused men. So anyway, that's a topic for another podcast, but just to notate that there, that it's not always just one person in the home that's being abused is, is the point of my com comment. So the, where my feelings get when my feelings get conflicted and having gone through what Hedda w went through, maybe not to the extreme because she's actually still has a lot of deformity in her face. And, um, some of the other sources that I looked at to her, her eye, one of her eyes continuously just weeps. You know, she's not crying, but her eye leaks tears. Um, and, and that's a permanent thing for her. That's how bad, badly she was beaten by, Joel Steinberg, um, just, you know, like I am conflicted. I can't say a hundred percent that she should have been held accountable because of the severity of her situation and what happened in her brain as a result of this constant abuse. However, I also feel like we're all responsible for the children. And to me, not, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I keep going back and forth in this. I'm not in an abusive relationship right now. So I, you know, my thoughts are a lot clearer than they were back then. And I just, sometimes I think that I'll say punishment. Punishment is part of the treatment. Punishment, so she should have been held accountable. I don't necessarily think she should have gone to jail, but I, because she wouldn't get any help in jail. And I just don't think that our penal system is really prepared for that. We can't, we throw everybody in jail right now for drug charges and we're not doing anything in the jails to help them. So why, you know, would we help? why would we think that a person who's been abused and ended up being culpable for a crime that they didn't maybe naturally actually commit, but were there, um, and didn't do anything. I don't think that somebody who is in a situation like this is going to get help in jail. I really don't. But I do think that if we hold somebody like Hedda responsible, okay, in a 
therapeutic sense, I guess is the best way to say it. In other words, like if we put her on some kind of probation, didn't put her in jail, but part of her stipulations of her probation would be to require her to get some kind of therapy and, you know, require her to stay away from the abuser, which we don't do. You know, we never, ever do that. We never require the victim to stay away from the abuser. And that's probably constitutionally wrong. But taking into account by her own admission, she went, she left six times and went back. That's part of the dynamics of an abused spouse is the inability to separate yourself from the person who's abusing you. So, I mean, I don't know the legalities behind forcing somebody to do that, but what I do know is, and they made this very clear to me, I did get a protective order against my abuser, and it was, it, they told me in court that if, if I violate that protective order, then it nullifies the protective order. You see what I'm saying? So that, that's kind of where my thoughts are coming from, is that there needs to be something to kind of force the victim away from from the abuser so that they can clear their head out and start getting some kind of help. Um, and then in this particular case, there was so much attention to Hedda. And granted, she, she did change things. Her case changed a lot of things for women um, as far as giving our society the knowledge of battered women. They called it battered women syndrome at the time. It's really battered persons. But, um, and then of course, Joel got his attention because he was the perpetrator. And it's almost like Lisa was forgotten or she's a side note in this case. It's really kind of sad that there was so much focus on the, the two people, the two adults who were responsible for her, um, that Lisa was just kind of like the catalyst for bringing attention to what was going on. It's, it's really sad, but that little girl did lose her life. Um, she was not, uh, her, her adoption case was not handled the way it should have been. And, um, to the best of my knowledge, there was no accountability for that other than, uh, Joel losing his, uh, his lawyer's license. So I don't know. There's just so many things, but in the end, I do think that Hedda was able to do a lot of good and the case did um, bring to light some things that are helping people to this day as far as knowledge. It was like the, the beginning, the first step to understanding the dynamics in um, domestic violence. And just, you know, for me, looking back, I mean, this was so long ago. I was a young woman then and I'm not a young woman anymore. Um, and how much I've learned about domestic violence and about myself since then. So I, I would really, really like to know what your thoughts, if you've listened this long to this video and my thoughts, I, I really would love to know if you have any thoughts or insight on this case. If you do, you can send me an email at isurvivedchildhood dot, uh, at gmail.com. In the meanwhile, I do hope that everybody stays safe and I will talk to you again. Thank you. Bye-bye.